You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. What's up, Revolution? That was terrible. Do it again. What's up, Revolution? Yeah, that's what I'm... Make sure you're awake. Those are some of the greatest announcements I've ever seen in my entire life. And I am not belittling Kat. That was amazing. She's getting ready to have a child, and she doesn't like crowds anyways, and she sucked it up to the glory of God, and I appreciate that. That's what I'm talking about. Yes. And the the meme was phenomenal. That was, I don't know who, Corey, like, was that you or her? That was her. Yes. Thank you. Um, So, I'm, I'm glad that you guys are here. I know we're... We're a little bit smaller than we're used to because of the college students being gone on spring break, and we will miss them. But the true Christian college students are here this evening. Um, yes, I'm kidding. Um, but I, I was kind of just thinking about how to, how to start a sermon. It's always the most awkward thing in the world just to get up here and just start speaking. Um, but I, I get to talk to you guys a lot throughout the week. Um, just various ones. People schedule meetings with me. I schedule meetings with other people. Um, see you in the coffee shop, different things like that. And... Uh, in, in sitting down and getting to, to talk with someone, uh, I get to hear about a lot of you guys' struggles, and I get to hear, you know, like, what, what um, sin is in your life that you're, you're currently fighting against, or you've just realized is in your life, and I've heard um, about a lot of problems um, that you guys deal with, whether they be, you know, financial or anxiety over schooling or um, things going on with different relationships that you have, um, and I get to pray with you, and I get a lot of prayer requests, so I've gotten to know Quite a few of you, hopefully I'll get to know all of you a whole lot better as time goes on, but I've gotten to know a lot of you, and I've just got to say this, um, you guys are really jacked up. <laughs> yes, like, I, I'm not going to name any names, but Stephen, like you, <laughs> that was a joke, come on, thank you Holly for being the one person, um, always the one person, oh, it's so good, um, but no, like, I'm, I'm, I, got, I got my own junk that I deal with, right? Like, I'm, I'm a sinner. We're all sinners in here, and we're all in this together. If, we're, if you're a believer, we're all family here. Um, and, you know, I've got people that I like to talk to, you know, about, like, my stuff that I'm dealing with. Like, I got Steve and Dustin and Kelly and AJ and a few other people that I can go to and I can confess my sin to and, and talk about the struggles and problems in my life and things that are stressing me out and, and, and be encouraged by them um, and be prayed for, um, so I just, before we go any further with this message, I just wanted to say that um, so you guys don't think that I'm some super Christian up here because I preach and I'm pointing the finger at you guys, um, but you don't even know what we're going to talk about yet. So I just wanted to get that clear. Uh, I, I, I struggle just as much as you do. Everyone goes through stuff. Um, everyone goes through trials and hardships, and, and we all suffer, right? We all suffer. Like, life sucks sometimes. Like, we can all agree with that. Like, life hurts. Things happen. Um, we might suffer in different ways. Some people might suffer more than others. You know, like there are Christians in other countries that are being martyred um, for the sake of the gospel. There, there are people whose families have disowned them for the sake of the gospel. Um, and then there's, you know, death, things like that that go on. Some of us suffer to various degrees, um, but it all hurts. Right? We can't judge how much we hurt based off how much more someone else is hurt. Um, like how much greater their pain is because pain is pain. Um, and I say that because I know for a fact that there are people here this evening who are hurting. Um, and I talk to you guys. Um, you know, I actually, when I was preparing for this sermon, because I had a couple of weeks to do it, because um, I took a break, I actually made a short list uh, up, in the, up in the upper right-hand corner of, of my 
margin on my notes of 15 people um, just off the top of my head without even trying that are dealing with stuff. Um, you know, whether it be, and I know that these things are going on. I know that there's, there's death. People are dealing with deaths in their families. People are dealing with sickness. People are dealing with cancer. People that they love that are dying. Uh, people are dealing with financial issues where they, they lost their job or they don't know what they're going to do or they're not making enough money and they're afraid they're going to lose their homes, things like that. Like, I, I know that this stuff is going on. I know that there are broken relationships. Um, you guys don't know if, if they're going to be mended. Um, but that's, that's what we're going to talk about this evening, though. Like, that's one of the things that, that pushed me to really want to take this sermon in that direction, is I know people are hurting, and we all go through things. And what we're going to talk about this evening is why we can persevere, why we can, why we can push on to the end, that we can be faithful to Christ until the day that we die. Um, and what we're going to do is we're going to look to Jesus Christ as our example. You know, Hebrews 12.1 says we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, and we look to his example. So that's exactly what we're going to do. Um, but maybe you're here and you're not currently going through anything, but in my experience, in my 24 short years here on earth, uh, is you're either about to go through something, you're currently in the middle of it, or you just came out. Like, that's how it is, man. Like, if you're, like, up on the mountain right now, like, the downgrade is coming, right? Like, the descent is coming. You're going to go through something if you're feeling good right now. Um, so listen, you know, hide these truths in your heart that we're going to talk about this evening, because without biblical um, truth about suffering, you will despair whenever life gets hard. You will absolutely despair, and you'll give up if you don't have something anchoring you in your life, if you don't have Christ anchoring you in your life. So we're still going to be in the Gospel of Luke this evening. We're doing this big, long series. This is our fifth semester. Um, some of you guys hate me for that, but we're, we're going to finish it up by the end of May, I promise. Um, but we're going to be in chapters, uh, chapter 22, verses 7 through 20. And we're actually, uh, as God's providence would have it, we're going to be looking at the Last Supper and the institution of communion. Um, and tonight we're actually doing communion, so this is kind of cool. Um, and we're going to look at some of the things that maybe you, you've read this passage or you've heard this passage that you, you probably missed, because I did. If I didn't have such a long time to prepare for this sermon, I would have probably glazed over a couple of these truths. Um, but we're going to see godly suffering from Jesus. Um, looking ahead into his crucifixion. Uh, but before we hop into that passage, um, before we get into Luke 22, I need to give you guys a little bit of background so you can understand uh, the context of what's going on here. Um, we're going to see in the first verse that we read, Passover is getting ready to happen, right? The Feast of Unleavened Bread is, is also what it's referred to in the New Testament as. This is one of the biggest Jewish holidays of the year, right? This is a huge one. It's like Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Passover, right? These are huge Jewish holidays. And actually, if you're a Jew, according to Exodus chapter 12, you have to celebrate the Passover. You have to observe Passover or you're cut off from Israel. Um, even if you're not like a practicing Jew, like you still have to like, if you're living in Israel, you still have to observe it on some level or like you can't even live there. Um, so this is huge. And some of you might not be too familiar with the story of Passover, so we're going to, I almost hit the dab there because I had something stuck in my throat. Uh, anyway, uh, it's the only dance move I got. Uh, <laughs> so some of you guys might not be too familiar um, with the concept of Passover or what exactly that is. But we're going to just do a, a short rundown of that. Um, starting off, God in Genesis, he made, he made a promise to Abraham 
Um, he's like the father of the Jewish nation, the father, father of, of Israel. Um, and he promised Abraham, I'm going to give you, here are the boundaries of land that I'm going to give you and your descendants. I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars. They're, they're going to be a great nation. And out of your descendants, I'm going to bless the world. Right? And we know that Jesus was a descendant of Abraham. Jesus was an Israelite. He was a Jew. So, boom, there's your blessing the world. Um, so, again, the, the nation that came from Abraham was Israel. And God refers to it as his special possession. He loves Israel, and he chose these people to be his own. Um, but we see Egypt enslave the people of Israel. Right? So if God is going to make good on his promise to Abraham... He decides, I must free the Israelites from slavery. If, I'm, if they're going to get this land and they're going to be uh, their own nation, and I'm going to bless the nations through them, they need to be free. Which That leads us from Genesis into the book of Exodus. You guys seen the story of Moses movies? Charlton Heston? Mm-hmm. Big black and white four hour long film. Yeah, you got to watch it in like the space of two days. You can't watch all that in one sitting. Your eyes will bleed. Um, but yeah, so like the story of Moses, uh, the, the dude with the, the, the burning bush, he's a prophet of God, you know, the, the ten plagues of Egypt, um, he parted the Red Sea, all, all that stuff. Um, so what we have in, in the book of Exodus, just a, a quick rundown of the first half or so, is that Egyptians would not free the Israelites. The Pharaoh would not let them go free. They wanted to keep them in slavery. And what they were doing uh, by not freeing the Israelites is they were absolutely defying God. God, Moses speaks on his behalf and says, hey, God says, let my people go. Um, and Pharaoh won't let him. So God starts throwing down plagues, right? Like lice and flies and the sun gets blotted out and there's hail and all this crazy stuff starts happening. The water turns to blood um, and yet they still won't listen no matter how bad it gets. So God says, okay, um, you won't listen. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stretch out my hand and show you just how powerful that I am, that I am the one true God and you won't defy me without any repercussions. So the final plague is the death of the firstborn. Um, this is the one that, that people kind of don't like to talk about too much because it's, it's the darkest and most severe of all the plagues that, that God put down on Egypt. Um, and God is going to show his supreme power here, that he's the author of life and death. And what, he, what God does is he goes through Egypt at midnight, he says, and, uh, and he kills all the firstborn sons of Egypt. Every household, the firstborn son dies. Um, And I think what God is saying in that is, I made a promise to Abraham, Israel will go free. They will go free. I'll make you so sorry that you didn't let them go whenever I asked you. No one can stop my plan, ever. I'll do whatever is necessary for my plan to go off without a hitch. Um, But God also makes a provision, right? Because the firstborn child, the firstborn son of every home was going to die, but God made a provision for the Israelites, Um, For the Israelites to avoid the death of their children, they had to sacrifice either a lamb or a goat um, at twilight, uh, Exodus tells us. And what they would do is they would slit the throat of this animal, and then they would collect the blood in a a basin or a bowl. And then God tells them, okay, you slaughter this lamb, you collect the blood, and you take a hyssop branch. It's a little fun fact for you. I don't know if you know the Bible got that specific. You take a certain kind of branch, you dip it in the blood, and then you put the blood and you cover your doorpost with it. Um, and if you do that, no one will die in that house. No firstborn kid will die in that house. So literally, you ready for Mr. Rogers preaches? God will pass over that house. Yeah, you ready? For, didn't you see? Pass over. God will literally pass over them. Uh, I think cute little things like that keep me going in life. Um, but again, this is because the blood of the sacrificial lamb, because of that blood, God would spare them from his wrath. 
all right? Um, and he would literally pass over their sins. Now, I said that to give you some context and just to point to this, because I, I wanted to preach a whole sermon on this, um, but I decided to go in a different direction. This is all a huge foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. All right, this is all a big foreshadowing. you got the Passover lamb that must be sacrificed. Jesus is the true Passover lamb. Right? John the Baptist, he sees Jesus right before he baptizes him. He says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right? He's claiming Jesus is this one true Passover lamb. And for us to have God's wrath pass over us and us not die eternally, for us not to spend uh, eternity in hell, we must have that lamb's blood applied to our lives by faith. Right? That's why we say you have to have faith in Jesus Christ or you're going to suffer God's wrath. The, the, the Old Testament Passover was just a big foreshadowing of Jesus. Now, I, I say that to say this. Jesus was always the plan. Right? Passover was just meant to be a foretaste of what Jesus was going to do. Because there's no more Passover sacrifice for those of us who are in Christ. Right? There's no more sacrifices. Jesus was crucified once for all sin. It's over with. We don't, we don't do that anymore. Um, and like I said, Jesus was always the plan. Revelation calls him the, the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. He wasn't, oh man, the Israelites really botched it. I better fix things. Um, you know, God foreordained this Passover. Um, and just like God foreordained that the Passover um, and his wrath would come down on the Egyptians, God also foreordained or predestined, depending on what kind of uh, word you want to use, God also predestined the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. Right? Like, it's prophesied. I just want to throw that out. We don't think about it that way. Like, yeah, that happened to Jesus. He was raised from the dead. No, like, it was going to happen. God said, this is part of my plan, and nothing can stop my plan. This was all part of God's sovereign plan to redeem his chosen people. There, there was no plan B. I just want us to get that in our head, that God is in control of all things. All things. And what he does is he actually predestines all things that come to pass to come to pass for his glory and our good. Right, this is a truth some of you may be unfamiliar with, some of you are more familiar with. But God predestines all things that happen to come to pass for his glory and our good, even things like the murder of his own son. There was no chance that Jesus was not going to be crucified. God said it would happen, and it was going to happen. No one was going to keep it from happening. He is, I'm going to use the word sovereign a lot here in the next little bit. The word sovereign means he is in full control, cannot be contradicted. What he wants to happen will happen. He's always in control. So keep that in mind. That is a huge theme for us this evening. Um, but that gives you guys a little bit of a background. Now we're going to hit Luke chapter 22, verses 7 through 20. Starting in verse 7. Now the festival of unleavened bread arrived when the Passover lamb is sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John ahead and said, Go and prepare the Passover meal so we can eat it together. Where do you want us to prepare it, they asked him. And he replied, As soon as you enter Jerusalem, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. At the house where he enters, say to the owner, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? And he will take you upstairs to a large room that is already set up. That is where you should prepare our meal. And they went off to the city and found everything just as Jesus said, and they prepared the Passover meal there. All right, now, before we go any further, I just want to throw this out to you guys. I'm, don't glaze over this. This was all foreordained by Jesus, right? Go there. This is how it's going to happen. There's going to be a dude with a jug there. Follow him home, and boom, everything just like he said it would be. This is in a secret place. The disciples have no idea where they're headed. They have no idea what they're looking for. The disciples don't know. And Jesus is saying, all right, dudes, this is how it's going to happen. This is him flexing his sovereignty here. So don't, don't miss that. Um, he's foreordained this. This is how it's going to go down. Verse 14. 
When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. Then he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this to remember me. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. Now, I see four really big concepts. Sorry, excuse me. Uh, I see four really big concepts that I want to go through in this text um, that, again, I, I just glazed over them at the first few readings. And it was only like five days into studying this text that it, they really popped out to me. Um, and here are the four. Just give you a little uh, cats out of the bag, right? The first one is the sovereignty of God in our suffering, right? The complete control of God as we suffer. Um, the second one, Jesus' desire to suffer to the glory of God. Third, godly suffering brings glory to God. And, and fourth, suffering will someday end. All right, so that's kind of the outline that we're going to be going through this evening. Um, but to, to, to kick it off, right, God's sovereignty in our suffering. What, what I see in this passage is that before, during, and after the suffering of Christ, he was completely in control. It is really, really subtle, but it's there. Right, and here's what I want you guys to consider. Here's where I'm getting that from. Consider the absolute seeming chaos that's getting ready to bust out in Jesus' life. Think about everything that's getting ready to happen to him in the next 24 hours. Right? He's about to be betrayed by one of his closest friends, Judas. Right? Then he's going to be arrested by temple guards and like, Pharisees, their people. Then he's going to have a mock trial done at night right, where not even all the people who are supposed to be there for a trial are there. They're going to condemn him to death. He's going to be beaten within an inch of his life. And then he's going to be crucified unjustly. And then he's going to be buried in a tomb. All of this within the next 24 hours of his life. That seems like just chaos to me. Right? Um, but again, verses 10 through 13, where Jesus tells them, you know, enter into Jerusalem, you're going to see this guy carrying this water jug, um, all, all that stuff. I think what Jesus is saying there, and he, and he says it in other places too, like, they won't get me until my hour has come. They didn't kill Jesus on the spot in this other place because his time had not come to die yet. Right? He's always saying stuff like that, um, or people are alluding to that for him. So I think what Jesus is saying in those first three verses, or uh, verses 10 through 13, rather, is I won't be arrested until I say so, right? Like, no one takes my life, but I lay it down of my own accord, and I have the authority to take it back up again, right? I'm paraphrasing. That's something else Jesus tells us. I won't be arrested until I say so. Again, this is a secret place. The Pharisees can't get to him. Judas can't rat out where they're going to be. This is all divinely ordained. And it says they go into town, and everything was just like it said that he, like he, that he said it would be, rather, um, so I think about that, and then I, I, I started thinking from a different perspective. With all of the awful things that are brewing for Jesus, right, this betrayal, the, the mock trial, the beating, the crucifixion, the burial, all that stuff, with all of these awful things brewing for Christ, if we don't see that God foreordained this to happen to Jesus, then this really just seems like a series of unfortunate events. Right? It's true. 
Like you just, man, like what unfortunate things to happen to Jesus. I can't believe that that would happen. If you don't believe that God has predestined this to happen, that's exactly what it seems like. And I'm not saying that these things that happened to Jesus weren't atrocious and that they weren't heinous, but they just seem like, man, that is an awful coincidence if you don't believe that God foreordained these things to happen. But God does predestine things to happen. He does have a plan for all things that happen period, in all of creation, and it all fits together. It's not random. It's not chaos. It's all part of the plan, right? And we're going to hit just a few passages I want to read. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11 says, Remember the things that I've done in the past. This is God talking. For I alone am God. I am God, and there is none like me. Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. I will call a swift bird of prey from the east, a leader from a distant land to come and do my bidding. I have said what I would do, and I will do it. Ephesians 1, 9 through 11. Paul says this, God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill his own good pleasure. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. In Job 42.2, the English Standard Version says, I know, Job is talking to God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose or plan of yours can be thwarted. Can't be stopped. Right? Everything. Our salvation. God chose us before we were born to be united with Christ and saved from our sins and not suffer His wrath. Every event that goes down in human history has led to the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and the proclamation of the gospel of Christ. Everything that goes on. All part of his good plan with his good purpose and his wise counsel from eternity past that he said all these things will come to pass and nothing can stop me. I am sovereign. I am in control. So if we don't see those kinds of things regarding the death of Christ, then it just looks really unfortunate. But if we see that God foreordains these kind of things, then we can, you know, quote Isaiah, right? Isaiah 53, it says, It was the Lord's good plan to crush Jesus. If we we really believe that God predestines things, then we can say that. It was the Lord's good plan. This wasn't just an unfortunate, oh man, I can't believe these things happened to Christ, but this was part of the plan the whole time. So all things fall in accordance with God's will, right? Things that we love, right? Like blessings, right? Like you get that car, you get that job, you find your spouse, you have a child, right? Things like that. Blessings. Our salvation was foreordained by God. Remember, he chose us before the foundation of the world were laying that we would be found in Christ. The return of Jesus is part of this foreordained thing. God knows when he's going to send Jesus back to stomp out the rebellion and end sin and death and suffering and all these things, but also the things that we would call bad. The things that hurt are also part of God's plan. Also part of his purposes, like suffering, right? like the murder of Jesus. Those things are also in there too. Um, a lot of the times we want to we only focus on the good things that God makes happen, and we don't want to focus on the things that hurt us that God also brings to pass because we think that, God, that gives God a bad rep. But I think God wants responsibility for both because he says he does. Um, just throwing that out to you guys. Um, and a little side note here too. Jesus was completely sovereign over his own suffering, right? Like the Pharisees weren't going to get to him before the appointed time. I want you to consider this. Whenever Jesus was here on earth, bound in time, right? Someone argue limiting himself and the things that he would do with his 100% divinity, that he was limiting himself on some level. Um, 
he was sovereign over his own suffering. Now, how often are we in control of our own suffering? Never. You're never in control of your own life. You might think you are, but you never are. You can't ever control anything that happens to you. But Jesus actually could. So I would just pose this to you. If you're dealing with something, you're going through a trial. If Jesus was in control of his own suffering, how much more now that Jesus is in heaven, outside of time, seated at the right hand of God the Father, King of kings, Lord of lords, name above all names, how much more in control of your suffering is he? just wanted to throw that out to you guys. How much more in control over your suffering is he? Alright? But it's all in God's plan, too. So remember that. It's planned. So that means God is not arbitrary with what he allows us to go through. Right? He doesn't just, nothing is on a whim. None of it's arbitrary. Now to me, this is hope for me. That means that no suffering is pointless. Nothing is pointless that hurts us. And we're going to get into that in a little bit. But I just want to say this. God's sovereignty is not just the point of theology for us to talk about. There is actual hope here that we don't suffer for no reason. And nothing happens that's chaos. Everything is part of his plan. And his plan is good. Right? Remember, the destruction of sin, Satan, and death is in his plan. And our salvation is in his plan as well. Right? So I say that to say this. I don't want you guys to buy this lie that God merely makes the bad things good. That's not what he does. Like, right? It's not like someone dies and God's like, man, I shouldn't have hit the snooze button this morning. I would have been there to see that happen. I maybe could have stopped it. No, like God says, I ordain the bad things to happen so that the good things can come from them. That's what he says. And we're going to see how he does that in a little bit. But to me, that is hope for me because that is a powerful God. That is a God worth worshiping. That is a strong God that I can entrust my whole life to even when I hurt. Right? And Jesus trusted God. He trusted the plan. Right? He was in on it too. You know, I mean, Trinity, Jesus has always existed, you know, just throwing that out there. So he's there. He agreed to the plan and he submitted to the plan. Right? Because, and because Jesus trusted that plan, he was willing to suffer to the Father's glory. All right? That leads us into our second point Jesus' suffering and his desire to suffer. You know, verse 15 um, says he desired the Passover to come. Right, the actual Greek made me laugh. It says, uh, I have desired with great desire. <laughs> like, he really wanted this Passover to come. Um, and he wanted it to come before he had to suffer. Um, now, let's throw this out to you guys. This is not the first Passover that Jesus ate with the twelve. This is his, uh, at least his second, if not the third one, he would have ate with the apostles. Um, but the reason why he desired it is he knows something is about to happen. Right? God's plan is about to, to go off. Everything that history has been pushing towards is about to go off. This is special. I'm about to do something serious. I'm about to put myself on the cross as an atonement for sin. He knows that this is huge. Um, and, he, and, and this blows my mind. He knew that his death was going to come after the Passover, and yet he still desired to eat it. Like, I wouldn't have been looking forward to that Passover, but, but Jesus was. And, and here's the thing, too. Jesus was, was willing and desired this Passover in spite of the pain coming his way. You guys ever, like, do things spitefully? Like, I like punk music. Like, I can't help it. Like, I'm kind of like a rebellious individual. So, like, if I can do something in spite of somebody and it not being sin, that's awesome. Right? So, like, Jesus is, is willing to take on this suffering in spite of the pain coming his way. Um, because he wants to glorify God. Like, think about it. Jesus was not looking forward to absorbing the wrath of God. Anyone want to go to hell? I didn't think so, right? Like Jesus is not looking forward to suffering God the Father's wrath on the cross. That's, that's not what he was 
That's not what he desired to come to pass, but Jesus was desiring to glorify God through the suffering, right? Like Hebrews 12, 2 says that he, like he takes on the cross because of the joy set before him, despising the shame of the cross, but because of the joy. And this is joy of bringing praise to the Father by buying back God's people that he chose for himself, right? But how are we going to do that, right? Like let's get a little bit practical here. Let's take this from the conceptual and make this concrete. Um, how are we going to bring praise to God in our trials? Look to Jesus. Uh, Sunday school answer, I, I get it. But look to Jesus, right? Hebrews 12.1, we talked about it in the intro. Um, you know, we keep our eyes fixed on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. That's what we always do. Um, so some things that I see Jesus doing throughout his crucifixion and, and leading into it is Jesus remained obedient, the first one. He remained obedient in his trial. Consider this. He observed Passover. That was part of the law. Right? Jesus was fully obedient to God, never sinned, never rebelled. Jesus still observed the Passover, even though he knew his death was coming. Um, now I don't know about you guys. I wouldn't really care too much about a ritual meal if I know that I'm about to die tomorrow. And Jesus says, no, like I, I must because I love my Father and I'm going to obey him. Right? So Jesus still celebrates Passover. Whenever he's being crucified, he's still loving his enemies. He's still praying for his enemies who are killing him while he's on the cross. Right? So he's still you know, loving his neighbor as himself. He's still walking in complete obedience to God the Father even though this suffering has come on him. Um, he never wavered. He never sinned ever. Um, he never sinned to try to spite God for his suffering. All right, now, we do that sometimes. I'll throw that out to you guys. We, we sin to spite God. Or maybe I'm just a whole other level of wicked that you guys aren't on yet. Um, and I hope you never uh, get there. Uh, it's, it's this kind of mentality. Like, fine. Like, you hurt me, God. And I'm going to now rebel and try to make myself feel better. You took a relationship from me. I'm going to run headlong into pornography because that's going to make me feel better. And I'm going to rebel against what you've told me to do. And, and I'm going to find some... some alleviation of my pain there. Right, I'm going to look somewhere else for fulfillment. Or, I'm not really looking for, for, for fulfillment there, but I can at least give you the finger because I'm mad at you right now. Right, we sin sometimes despite God because we're mad at Him. We see people do that all the time. Whenever someone that they love dies and they, they, get so, they shake their fist at the sky and, and curse God and abandon the faith, they sin despite God. But that's really, really stupid. <laughs> Um, that's really dumb. And I've, I've done this kind of stuff too. But now you've got two problems. One, you've got the trial that you're going through. And two, now you've got sin that you have to repent of and that you have to deal with. So this is really dumb, but we tend to do that sometimes. So again, Jesus remained completely obedient to God in, even in the trial. Um, the second thing that I see Jesus doing is he didn't complain. That hurts, doesn't it? He didn't complain. Right? Like Isaiah 53, 7 says that like a lamb led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb is silent before its shearers, he opened not his mouth. Like he, nothing, never complained ever about his lot in life. Um, and here's why, I'm convinced. He understood the sovereignty of God. He knew that everything that he's going through would not be happening if it were not for God's will. And he trusts God's will. Right? Complaining, really, I'll just throw this to you again. Complaining is really us saying that God is wrong in his decisions for our lives. I shouldn't have to go through this. God says, I, I say that this is part of my plan for your life. Um, and you say, no, no, it shouldn't have been. You were wrong. Um, that God should have done differently. That his plan isn't actually good. Because if it was actually good, it would be different. And that's blasphemy. You're saying God's wrong? That he's not all-knowing? No. 
That's, that's blasphemous. It shows you actually don't really understand the character of God whenever we complain. And again, I'm not pointing the finger there. I'm looking straight in the mirror on that one because I complain all the time about stupid stuff. Um, and I'm not saying that that is acceptable. I'm just trying to be transparent with you guys. But complaining really is just blasphemy. It's saying that God is wrong. And Jesus never did that. He understood that God was in control of it and he just took it. Because he trusted him. That, and that's the third thing that I see Jesus is he trusted God's good plan. He had true faith. We don't think about that. Jesus had faith in God. Jesus being God the Son had faith in God. It's kind of a strange concept, right? Um, but here's what faith is. It is a complete dependent trust in God. That's what that is. It's not just this, oh, yeah, I believe it. Like my believies, they make me feel kind of good. Um, no, it's like I completely entrust my life to you. That's why we say I have faith in Jesus Christ. And what that means is I trust God's promise about Jesus, that Jesus has taken my sin on himself and suffered God the Father's wrath on the cross and was raised from the dead on the third day so that I would be forgiven and raised um, to new life as well. I trust God's promise about Jesus, and I'm not going to try to earn my salvation anymore. I'm not going to try to impress God with my good works anymore. I'm going to rely completely on what Jesus has done. Complete reliance, complete dependency, complete trust. That's faith. And that's what Jesus had. That's how our Lord Jesus suffered. That means that's how his followers suffer if we're going to be disciples. In trust and obedience. Right? But this is what we call godly suffering. You know, suffering done God's way. I've heard that from another preacher at Wheelersburg Baptist Church. He says that all the time. Um, Suffering done God's way. And it brings him glory. It brings God the Father glory. Now, how? I'm a dude who likes to ask how all the time. Like, how does that work out? How is this practical? Um, Because this, as we suffer God's way and we continue to trust him and his plan and we continue to walk in obedience to God, uh, the world around us, uh, unbelievers, and even believers, can see that we are unwavering in our obedience, that we're not speaking out against God, that we're wholly trusting him. Um, As they see us doing that, we prove that God is the most beautiful, glorious thing to us. You know, um, suffering like that says, it doesn't matter what I go through. I trust Jesus. I'm going to remain faithful to him. I will never stop loving and trusting him, no matter what comes. That's really what that, that kind of a life declares to the world around you without you even saying anything that you would remain faithful and you would keep loving Christ through the suffering. I don't care what I go through. He's the most beautiful thing that I've ever found, and I will not leave him because he is all to me. I can have nothing else, but if I have him, that's enough. You know, and this brings God glory for some other reasons too. One, it encourages other believers, right? Like, we're all pushed on in our faith and inspired by people like King David, Right, who's like chased down, hiding out in caves, everyone's trying to kill him, and he's writing psalms the whole time about the goodness of God. He's also writing songs about how much suffering sucks. But like at the same time, he's writing these songs about how God is faithful and God is good to his people as people are trying to kill him. We see Paul, right, who's beaten and in prison, and people around him are being murdered for their faith in the gospel. And Jesus commands us in Philippians, rejoice. Like multiple times, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. 
That pushes us on that he would persevere in his suffering. We see Peter doing the same thing. We see men like Martin Luther, who, who the Catholic Church wanted to kill whenever he's leading the Protestant Reformation. And he says, no, like I'm not going to quit following Jesus. I'm not going to recant. That inspires us and pushes us forward. We see men like Charles Spurgeon, who suffers with depression his entire life and never ceases to preach, who never ceases to walk in obedience to Christ. And we say, man, if I was dealing with depression or the death of my children, I hope that I can suffer like that. Right? Like whenever we suffer to the glory of God, it encourages other believers. Uh, another thing, suffering this way can make unbelievers take notice of our faith and desire it. Right? Like, like it is a foreign thought to people that we would love the God who allows us to suffer. Because we live in a prosperity gospel driven nation. Where God is a cosmic vending machine. Like, yes, I would like an A7, Lord. Um, and you just get it. Like, that's, that's, what we, that's what people think God is. So why would you love a God who, instead of giving you the A7, gives you someone you love dies? But whenever we suffer well, we're showing people, we're showing them something they've never seen. That we still love Him regardless. And this might make them think, this God really must be worth it. Um, these people know something that I don't know about this God. It makes the world stand and take notice. And then thirdly, facing trials in this way is our cooperating with God's purposes in our suffering. You know, 1 Peter, 6 and 7, or 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, uh, he says, So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. You know, James chapter 1 like echoes this kind of idea. As we suffer, and we suffer to the glory of God, and we remain obedient, and we remain trusting Him, and being dependent on Him, and knowing His goodness, and trusting His plan, God intends to use that to mature our faith. If faith is trust, you really don't trust people until you're put in a position where you have to. God wants to build our trust in Him. He says, Peter here and James says the same thing, trials burn out the impurities of our faith. Just like you, you burn gold and you melt it to get the dross out, to get the junk in there that's not pure gold to burn out. God does the same thing with our trials, so it's going to hurt sometimes. Um, but here's the result, is Jesus Christ prays. The praise of Jesus, which I know some, that might strike some of you guys a little bit uh, wrong. But our faith becomes pure gold because Jesus has sovereignly said, you're going to go through trials. And then whenever we stand before Jesus for all of eternity, he says, look at this good gold that I made. And he's calling you good gold if you remain faithful through trial. I mean, that's worth it throughout eternity. I mean, like, ask yourself this question whenever you're dealing with trials or, or hardships. What's going to matter 100,000 years from now? That thought alone, the praise of Jesus Christ calling you good gold that he made, should push you to want to persevere in your faith. All right, but never forget this fact either, that God can, can use suffering to accomplish great purposes. You know, 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4 talks about, you know, whenever we suffer, we're comforted with the comfort given to us from God so that we can go out and comfort people who are suffering as well with the exact same comfort that we have received from God. So we go through our own junk so that we can help people in theirs. Um, you know, so we can help our brothers and sisters. So we can do like Paul tells the Galatians, uh, I believe it was Paul in Galatians, to bear one another's burdens. And to bear up together like a team, like soldiers would bear up. Uh, that we can encourage one another with the same comfort of God that we've experienced 
You know, like God has saw me through this. He can see you through it as well. Or I've even been through worse, perhaps, and he saw me through it. I mean, look at the, the testimony of the Apostle Paul. Um, and in doing that, in comforting one another in that way, we can truly be the church. We can truly love one another. Now, some people might look at me because this is, I'm really selfish. Like, that's not a good enough reason to allow suffering, right? That I could comfort someone else. So if you want something bigger than that, I'll just throw this before you. How about the cross? You want to talk about God accomplishing something good through suffering. God accomplished the greatest purpose in all of history by the suffering of his son Jesus. Right, verse 20, Jesus talks about the new covenant, that his blood right, being poured out as in like an Old Testament drink offering that's poured out on God's altar, that his blood establishes this new covenant, that he's going to have to be poured out, bleeding, broken. And in that suffering... He's going to do the greatest thing that we could have ever asked for. He's going to save sinners through this. So if you don't believe that God can do great things with suffering, you've not considered the cross. If you're despairing because of your suffering, you've not considered the cross. There's comfort there. In all these things, God is trustworthy with our lives. He is not arbitrary. He has proven his love for us on the cross, and we can trust him through the pain. We can Scripture says we can. Don't, don't believe this because I'm telling you. Scripture says that we can. But, you know, even with all of those reasons to push on and trust God's plan, Jesus offers us even more peace in this text about the Last Supper. Right? Verses uh, 16 through 18, he says, For I tell you now, what's we'll do 16, For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. I won't eat it again until... I almost didn't catch this. He's implying, I will eat it again. It will be fulfilled in the kingdom. Right? Like that's, that's huge for us. Right? And he's, he's referring to the marriage supper of the Lamb that we can read about in Revelation 19. Um, but Jesus could suffer to the glory of God because he knew that it would end. He knew the outcome. And we know the same thing. We know that there is coming a day when all suffering will end. We know that for us personally, suffering will end whenever we die and we go to be with Jesus. And we know that suffering for the entire world is going to end someday at the return of Jesus, where he consummates this kingdom, where everything is fulfilled in the kingdom by the new covenant that Jesus is talking about there in verse 16. Jesus knew the outcome. He knew that he would be victorious over death. He knew he would be victorious over suffering. He knew that the suffering would end. So that's another reason that we can embrace or that's another reason, rather, that he could embrace the cross with joy. His love for the glory of God and his knowledge of future victory. Like, that's heavy stuff. And here's the thing. You know the same thing if you're a Christian. You know the exact same thing. Jesus promises to put an end to all sickness, to all pain, to all of our problems, to all of our broken relationships, to all of our anxiety. He promises to put an end to death itself. That's a cool concept, the death of death. Jesus promises that. He says it will end. One day, if you're a believer, all suffering is over for us if we have trusted in God and believed his gospel. If you're not a believer, suffering has only begun for you whenever you die. But if you're a believer and you persevere into the end, it will end. If we push through the pain in this life, we will have life forever. We will have joy forever because we will have Jesus forever. 
Now, I want to I read a passage to you guys, and it's, it's a long one, but you guys are going to do well. I got faith in you. I got faith in Jesus, but I'm hoping that you guys will do all right. Um, Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 39. Think on this. Hide in this. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us, as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We, too, wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't have yet, we must wait patiently and confidently. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what to pray, uh, what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father, who knows all hearts, knows, uh, knows what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son will be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? And since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we are being killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No. Despite all these things overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Don't give up. Whatever you go through, don't give up. That's what that passage is telling us. God loves you. He chose you as His own. If you're a believer, He bought you with the blood of Christ and nothing is out of His control. Nothing. And the suffering must come. Not even the powers of hell can separate you from God's love in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for everything that you do. Whether we view it as bad or whether we view it as good, thank you for being good no matter what you deal our way. Thank you for the truth that it's not arbitrary. Thank you for the truth that nothing is chaos. Thank you for the truth that everything has meaning. Father, help us to hide in those truths. God, you are sovereign. And it's because of your sovereignty that we are saved. It's because of your sovereignty that Christ went to the cross. It's because of your sovereignty we suffer. Father, we love you for everything that you do and everything that you don't do. Help us to believe that you're in control and be more dependent. Help us to trust and obey like the hymn says. Give us peace in our trials and in our hardships because we know that you love us and nothing can separate us from that love in Christ. Father, we worship you and we thank you for everything. In Jesus' name, amen.